Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alex Sokolbwasser. We're at Sokolbwasser Winery in Dayton. It's uh, August 7th, 2018. And Alex, we're going to start by asking you, why wine? Yeah, why wine? Uh, well, because my, because of my parents. So, simple answer. Uh, you know, I grew up in the business. So, uh, was lucky enough to uh, have that experience growing up. So, it was really because of mom and dad. Yeah. You know, they. This is a passion for them, and uh, um, that's, you know, that's the, the end of the day. Being born into the family, you know, that uh, is what positioned me to be part of the wine industry. Because I don't know if I would have gotten into it mm-hmm. if, if I wasn't born into it. So. so tell me about that. Tell me about growing up in the industry yeah. and kind of the, your perspectives there. And, and did you ever consider doing something else? So uh, growing up in it, um, growing up in it was a lot of work. Um, you know, parents never, uh, uh, they never uh, said, you know, this will be yours. It was always, well, if you want to make some money, there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. So uh, my older brother and I would spend a lot of times in the vineyard in the summertime working. Um, I'm six years older than my sister, mm-hmm. Allison, so I didn't, wasn't a lot of times working with her. It was mostly my older brother is only like three years older than me. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it actually got to the point where I'm like, this is too hard to work. I want to get a different job. So when I was 15, I uh, got a job as a bike mechanic at a local bike shop in McMinnville. So I was a bike mechanic and I felt, I thought, well, this is living because now I'm in air conditioning. <laughs> you know, I don't have to worry about, you know, working out in the field. So, um, and I remember working those long days in the vineyard in the summertime and I'm like, you know what? Oh, I'm going to marry some New York babe, live in the big city, get away from Oregon. Mm-hmm. You know, this will be, this will be, this will be history. So, um, but look at me now. <laughs> um, so the, you know, life is about perspective. And, you know, once you go off to college and, you know, you, you realize what you had, you go, wow, it's actually, you know, I know I wanted to get away from it. <laughs> um, but I love the business and I love, I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got to find a career and uh, do something that means something to you, uh, this, you know, I learned after um, uh, doing some other things. I mean, I think one of the things that always spoke to me was working harvest. Because mm-hmm. you know, even though I got a job as a bike mechanic, I'd always, still, when I was a teenager, I'd always work harvest here. Um, to the point where my senior year in high school, the high school counselor was like, you better start studying this fall if you want to go to college, because your grades suck. Because I was working so much harvest, and mm-hmm. it was, you know, so much fun. Because um, <laughs> you're working with these, you know, these guys. When was that? So that was in 92. We had a crazy Kiwi and a crazy Aussie. Um, 
uh, winemaker was John Ha back then, and I mean it was just it was it was just a you know harvest is a kind of a carnival environment mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and that was always appealing to me, um, and that was fun. Um, so, but yeah, I did uh, I did get better grades after that. <laughs> Tell me so. about the tell me about the early days, uh, being a child in the kind of the, the industry that almost doesn't exist yet, uh, and kind of know, you you would have known the whole wine industry at that point, and you would have known yeah. the kids and stuff too. So tell me about some of the relationships, some of the memories you have. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, going to because uh, Adam Campbell was my brother's age. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in the winemaker now at Alcove, mm-hmm. and I remember going to basketball games when it was Dayton versus Gaston. And it was my brother versus Adam, so I was like, "All right, we got to, we got to, we got to beat Adam's team. This is, this is a big deal, you know. This is, you know, the, it's a little bit of competition." Um, the people I remember most growing up with would be, you know, the Ponzi kids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Maria and Louisa, Adam, and then Jason led with Irie. Mm-hmm. So, because um, that's who we would, you know, when we go to parties, and the parents would go off in their corner, and you know drink and chat about the industry, we would run around the house and who knows do what. So, um, and uh, also during snow days on the hill, uh, it was Jason and I and my older brother, we would go on some pretty epic sled runs. Um, So it was more of, you know, just kids hanging out. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't start Again, I don't think we realized <laughs> that we were second generation of a first generation winemaking family until we were much older. Mm-hmm. And then we realized, oh, wow, okay, you know, we, we do share quite a lot in common. You know, we have a very similar background. Parents did exactly the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, now, you know, I, I see you know, Adam and Louisa and Maria and um, a little bit with Jason more than I ever did when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have all these shared memories too, you know, of, of you know, with growing up in the, in the same, same neck of the woods. Um, so it was, uh, again, you know, perspective is everything. Cause I think when we were hanging out as kids, it was just, you know, you watch the latest episode of the A-Team. Yeah, I did. You know, it was great. What are you doing? You know, n- no wine discussions until we're older. Sure. You know, 20s, 30s, sure. in the industry, doing our thing and exchanging notes and, you know, working on that. Sure. So, yeah. So let's talk about you go, uh, you go off to college, you're not necessarily thinking about doing wine at that point. What's, right. the, what's the turning point for you? What point do you realize? So, you know, my first year at college was at Texas in, the, in San Antonio, mm-hmm. at uh, um, Trinity University in San Antonio. And um, it was, uh, I've, I, I never visited Trinity. Uh, it was the only college I applied to that actually allowed me in. So um, I aimed high, you know. I tried to go to try to get into Duke, Vanderbilt, Tulane. Eh, eh, eh. Um, so uh, where else did I apply? I aimed high. So I think my backup was uh, uh, Trinity, 
and then um, yeah, I just play, I just wanted to get the hell out of here. So and these were all I've never been to the South. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, let's, I'll, I'll go to go go to the best school in the South. Sure. So um, I was actually most interested in going to Tulane in New Orleans. That, that, that sounds very exotic mm-hmm. to a you know high school senior growing up in Dayton, Oregon. <laughs> it's like, wow, New Orleans. <laughs> never been there. I don't see black people. Yeah. A lot of black people in New Orleans. Sure. You know, you're, you're, we're growing up in Oregon, very, very white. Yeah. You know, the only, you know, so that was something I was, you know, hoping, you know, to experience something different than mm-hmm. what is here. Mm-hmm. Um, still like New Orleans. Um, went there, not in college. Um, so, so Trinity. All right. So go to Trinity, um, and I missed home. Went there, um, had a really good first year. I had too much fun. Um, and I realized, God, I, I actually think I might want to come home and study forestry. You know, because I loved the outdoors. I loved, you know, backpacking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I transferred to Oregon State. And when I transferred to Oregon State, I, took a, I studied forestry, but I needed to, needed to make some money. So I went to the VIT the viticulture and analogy department and you know met Barney Watson who was head of analogy and then Steve Price who was head of the viticulture and I said hey you need any help I know how to grow you know I know how to do all this stuff they said sure we'll hire you to work harvest and we'll hire you to do projects in the field so I said great so I need to you know these are my skills and my background I know how to make money doing this way that's so that so that was my job so I worked um, actually, most of my hours were spent with Bernadine Strict in her lab studying phylloxera. Hmm. And we were actually, we had phylloxera in our vineyard. So it was like pertinent. Mm-hmm. So it was, that was great. So I studied forestry, but what was, but after, that was the first term. So the second term, I actually took some horticulture classes, which was more about viticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, while still working with Steve and Barney and Bernadine, and then, um, you know, and then after my second term, I got bored. Then I joined the military. And that was that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do a straight four years of college. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, and then, you know, when I was in the military, it was, I just joined the reserves. So I was in the Air Force. Um, so for the next year, between basic training and all the training, um, I came home, and then I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And it was the harvest of, of, harvest of 1994. So I said, well, I need to make some money. What am I going to do? I'm going to work harvest. Mm-hmm. So I worked harvest here at Sokol Blosser for the harvest of 94. And then um, uh, after working harvest, uh, the winemaker at the time, John Ha, said, Alex, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm not going to go back to college. I'm not ready yet. I want to work. So we said, so we needed a, um, our cellar master left after harvest. So we hired me as our cellar master. So um, the day after he hired me as cellar master, my mom fired me (laughs) as cellar master. (laughs) And not because... Not because I was doing a good job. She fired me because Sokol Blosser wasn't wholly owned by the Sokol Blosser family. We were owned by a uh, majority by Sokol Blosser, and then we also had some minority owners, the Durant Vineyards and mm-hmm. Highland Vineyards. 
And they made it they made it very clear to my mom that they don't want more than two family members at the same time working at the same time. You know, so only my mom could work. My mom and my dad, no. My mom and me, no. So the next day, my mom fired me. So they, yeah, that didn't that didn't go over very well. <laughs> didn't go very over very well with me. Um, so I said, "Fuck it," you know. Okay. So I mean, it, it to me, it, it, in my mind, it's like, well, this. I know it's a so-called blaster, but it's not really a family business because you know we don't have control over it, and you know it, it's. I, I'll, that's okay. You know, I, I'll go someplace else. Right across the way, they're building Archery Summit. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, looks like they need work. So I went over there, met with Andy Humphrey, and he hired me as his vineyard, vineyard foreman. So I worked for Andy as a vineyard foreman for about a year. Um, and I was there, you know, um, that's when back when Gary Andrus was around. Mm -hmm. Gary would diligently do his best to piss off a lot of people. God bless him. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Um, and to that end, he would love to drive his big S Suburban to our crush pad, just on our property, on our crush pad, so he can see how his facility is being built. <laughs> Piss my mom off to no end. Um, but that was Gary, you know. Um, so yeah, worked for Gary, worked for um, Andy um, for a little over a year, and then you know. After working in the vineyard for a year, I realized, oh yeah, I forgot, this is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Vineyard work's a lot of work. Um, physically demanding work. And then I realized, you know what? Maybe I should go back to college. You know, maybe. And I, I kind of figured out what I wanted to study. Mm -hmm. Philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to Portland State. And in two and a half years, Knocked out, knocked out my degree um, at Portland State, um, and I was also the news editor for the school paper. I really loved that. I was thinking, oh, maybe I should could be in you know news or something like that, because I just studied philosophy because I love philosophy. I was I don't want to be a teacher. Ugh. Um, I love people who can teach. That's great. They got patience. That that was that wasn't gonna be me. <laughs> um, so. Uh, then when I finally got my degree, I you know that was when ninety seven. It's like, well, what am I going to do now? Um, well, I knew how to knew how to farm, mm -hmm. so I applied to. Actually, I got a job offer to work for um, Alan Holstein at. Back then, it was the Dundee Wine Company, mm -hmm. which was the farming arm of Argyle. Um, and uh, but my mom said, well, why don't you, you know, Alex, you you're personable. Why don't you try selling wine? Why don't you, you know, I can get you an interview at least with our distributor. So I did that. I got an interview with our with the distributor, um, and the distributor, I got a job offer there. And then also I went, you know, you go to the job fair, you know, your college job fair, and I applied to sell life insurance, like a lot of seniors do because you know wow there's the money wow there's a lot of money in that oh my god and then in the last interview with that I realized that I don't play golf <laughs> and I realized in the final interview you're interviewing with the head of the life insurance company and I'm like wow this is really boring I, I don't play golf I can't do this mm -hmm. so I 
decided to try the job selling wine, working for Columbia Distributing. That was back when Ed Miletus ran the show there. Um, and I started as a merchandiser in Salem, did that for three months until a sales slot opened up. And then a sales slot opened up in Portland, was up in Portland, and then um, sold everything from wine to Snapple to Fred Meyers, Safeways, Albertsons, all these, you know, um, grocery stores. Um, and that was fun. You know, I realized, wow, that this is something I'm good at. Um, and uh, yeah, it was good. So, um, and then my mom offered to hire me. Now, here's what changed between when I graduated in 97 from college, mm -hmm. my mom engineered a way to buy out Highland and Durant. So in 97, we became wholly family owned and operated. So, and I'll never forget my mom, um, the quote from the time, which I, is tattooed in my brain. My mom said, the only partner I want is one to dance with. It. No more business partners. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've remained mm -hmm. to this day like that. Um, and, you know, yeah. I mean, when you have business partners, they'll say, well, I know you hired your sub, but now you got to fire him. Ooh. Yeah. That's fun. Um, so when my mom offered me a sales job at the winery, this was in um, the this was in the summer of '98. It was things have changed. Mm -hmm. She wasn't going to hire me and fire me. She'd fire me if I just sucked, not because I'm a Sokol blossom. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I, I thought long and hard about it because I was like, well, you know, I got this is weird, but I know we own it, and you know, we all. Um, we all put money into the pot so we could buy out the, the, the partners. Um, so um, we all, as family members, made that investment. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I, I think I can do this. Mm -hmm. So that was in 1998. Um, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> um, but I think, if anything, the tale of how I came into the business is wasn't a straight path. Mm -hmm. It curved, you know, and a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, when you need to make a buck and support yourself, how are you going to do it? Well, you're going to rely on the skills that you know mm -hmm. and that are marketable. And for me, that was always, you know, managing and running a vineyard or working harvest. Mm -hmm. And so I always leaned on those. Um, and then when we finally got control of the wine, family wine, of the, the business, then I was able to, to offer to the family business another side of myself, which was sales and marketing. Um, and as I've learned in, the, in this business is you can make great wine, but if you can't sell it, you're nowhere. So being able to sell is really everything. Sure. The sales and marketing, Pete, I mean, there are people, there are wineries that wine might be crap, but they've got a great sales and marketing engine, mm -hmm. machine that they'll decimate anyone, the competition, even if the wine is, other wine is superior. Mm 
Um, so you see that time and time again. So the ability to sell sell a market and, and get your message across. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the wine industry is a fashion industry. We're in the fashion business. So, and, and developing that, um, being the, being the, having that story, mm -hmm. weaving it in a way that's so beautiful, you know, people, you know, will just go, wow, that really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy the hell out of your wine. <laughs> so... So you mentioned uh, working for time as a, with a distributor, and that's an interesting, a pretty interesting route to go from there back into the family business because you saw that sales in. So tell us a little yeah. about what kind of what you learned in that role about the sale of wine and about how to, you know. So I was trained by a guy at Columbia who was one of the best sales reps at Columbia. Mm -hmm. He's been doing it his whole life, you know, and he taught me a lot. And the first lesson is this. He said, he was a smoker. He said, Alex, this is really important. You gotta understand this one thing. He said, it ain't sold till it's pissed out in the urinal. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what does that mean? So he said, you can sell a wine into an account, being a retailer or a restaurateur, but you gotta help them move it too. You gotta make them excited to sell your product. So let's just say you, you get a big display at Fred Meyer. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to get the store manager, you got to get the wine steward excited about your product because you can put a display up, doesn't mean it's going to sell. Sure. You got to help them move through it. Same thing with a restaurant. You got to train the wait staff. You got to get people excited about your product so it actually moves. Mm -hmm. So the main thing about um, uh, that I learned about selling wine is it uh, making the sale is just part of the what you got to do. Mm -hmm. You got to help the account sell through, and that could just be because you have you run a lot of ads out there that helps the throughput, or you've got um, you know some other kind of hook that helps. Um, you know, clearly having a uh, um, Having a, a story is pretty damn important. I mean, I take that for granted because I'm Alex Sokolblosser. But you know, if I'm not Alex Sokolblosser and I'm selling Sokolblosser wine, you've got to have a story. You say, oh well, hey, you know, if I'm the salesperson for Sokolblosser, you say, one of the oldest wineries in Oregon. They, this is what they do. They're good to the earth. They're organic farmers. They, you know, mm -hmm. Alex is the winemaker there. I mean, you've got to you got to have a story. Some reason for people to say, well. This wine is worth buying over the thousand other labels I'm looking at in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, you got to do it all. Got to have good packaging. I mean, mm -hmm. it's got to look like, you know, redeemable enough that you just want to at least take the bottle off the shelf and look at it. <laughs> sure. So, um, there's some similarities between labels and, you know, book covers. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Powell's, it's like, why did you pull that off the shelf? It's probably either because the, the, the book cover was amazing or because it was a staff pick. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was a reason. If you are, if you catch yourself and ask yourself, why did I actually look at that book? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there, 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 there's a there's a lot going on in that sales, and, and there's a lot of 
that's where it gets competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, the Oregon wine industry is very collaborative on the, you know, making wine, growing grapes, and whatnot. There's a lot more, you know, um, and there is there is some collaboration on the sales and marketing bit, but there also is a lot of, that's where the competition comes in. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, in terms of selling and marketing, so. So you come back to the family in 1998, come back to family business, now a, now a complete family business, yep. no outside investors. Right. What's your role and, and, and what's the plan when you, when you get hired here? Is there a long-term vision or is it just, I, I, this is the next thing I'm doing? So, no, there was not a long-term vision, but I think in my mind, when I decided to come back to the family business full-time in 1998, it was really a, this probably be the last job I ever have. And if not, that could be pretty embarrassing. Um, <laughs> so I, the, the idea was, but the thing was, that was in my mind. My mom and dad still didn't talk about second generation running the business at that time. Um, and really, it wasn't until the mid-90s that the winery even started making money. <laughs> so you know, we were you know, good cash flow, but not profitable. So it wasn't until the mid-90s that we actually started becoming profitable that we could actually make some investments and mm -hmm. you know, do, think more than just hand to mouth. Because my parents didn't start with a lot of money. I mean, that started with family loans that we had to pay back. And you know, that was, and then pay back to the point where, oh shit, we got to cash out family members and bring in investors. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Duran Highlands came in. Because um, the family called, called the loans. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, you know, a lot of what you see now are very large companies coming into Oregon with, you know, and this is an easy investment to make. Mm -hmm. Or people who, you know, instead of buying a yacht in their retirement, they buy a vineyard. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, but there still are some, you know, people who are starry-eyed, who have nothing and start from, start from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be fewer and farther between these days. But, um, uh, so it, it really wasn't until um, my sister came on in 2004, 2005, that I think my mom started seeing that this could be a second generation company. Mm -hmm. So. And so what, were your, what was your role when you got so hired? So my role in 98 was, uh, I was a sales rep. Mm -hmm. So I basically went wherever my mom told me to go. So I traveled the country, you know. Um, so in 98, 99, really, I was uh, working myself up to, um, you know, general sales manager, um, you know, traveling, you know, a week, a month until like 2010, really for 12 years, just a road warrior. And then we developed a pretty robust export sales program, so I was traveling all over the world too, um, setting up sales and all over the place. So um, it was tough, um, you know, with, with my boys and, you know, um, it was, it's tough traveling that much, um, as my sister's finding right now. It's tough, it's tough. Um, because in 2010 is when I transitioned over to become 100% um, production. Mm -hmm. So really focusing on you know becoming the new winemaker. You know when my stepdad Russ decided to retire in 2010, I said, hey, I'd love to become winemaker. And so that was a 
transition, and I took over as winemaker in 2012. So that was my first vintage as winemaker. So, but for the first 12 years, I was road warrior. Mm -hmm. So putting a lot of miles. Tell me about the reaction to Oregon wine when you were out trying to sell it nationally, internationally in the early, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was still, there was still a lot of what my parents dealt with in the 70s and 80s, in the early 90s, which was you gotta, you gotta explain what Oregon is. You don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I still had to say, you know, let me tell you about Oregon. You know, this is where Oregon is. North of California, south of Washington. And also, also, Pinot Noir. Talk about Pinot Noir. Um, you know, Pinot Noir, you know, is, um, you know, lighter than Cabin Merlot. I mean, everything was in rel relation to what everyone knew, yeah. which was Cabin Merlot. Um, and, you know, so really it was Oregon, and then it was Pinot Noir, and then it was Sokolblosser. So, um, Oregon, Pinot Noir, Sokolblosser. So I couldn't really start talking about myself until I really felt that the people understood Oregon mm -hmm. and then also understood Pinot Noir. These days, God, man, that hurdle is so low now. You don't have to jump that hurdle anymore. <laughs> um, it's, which is great. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So. So as you're transitioning into production, um, tell us about the, also the transitioning into the co-presidency with Allison. Tell us about that, the kind of yeah. transition as your mom was retiring and dad, stepdad's retiring and yeah. how that all worked. Um, it was really tough. It was really tough. Um, the, uh, you know, there's that old adage that, you know, generals don't die, they just slowly fade away. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was the, definitely with my mom, you know, transitioning in, that transition was 2008 mm -hmm. from my mom to my sister and I, when we were co-presidents. My mom always loved to say when she retired that, hey, it takes, it's taken two people to replace just me. <laughs> so my son and, Alex and got Allison co-presidents, um, but the transition with Russ, you know, a transition with a winemaker. You know, a winemaker, the 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 job is to create is a very generative position. It's artistic and it's scientific, mm -hmm. and there's so many ways to make wine. So many ways. Every part of the process is belongs to the winemaker. Every part. Mm -hmm. So when there's a transition, things are different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, Russ got to see, you know, Russ and I are very different people. So Russ, fortunately or unfortunately for him, got to see how detailed the changes would be because he didn't really leave, mm -hmm. you know? He was winemaker and it doesn't, wasn't like he just left and we never saw him again. <laughs> no, 
he just stopped being winemaker, but he was still around. Mm -hmm. You know, so he still, he still saw, still saw what I was doing, and then, you know, the drama between uh, Russ not liking what I was doing, and then he would tell my mom, and then my mom would tell me, and then it just this just awful triangle, you know, and that that was tough. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the beautiful things of a family business is there's inherent trust, but there's also you know, you can get into some weird family dynamics. You know, there's a triangulation in terms of mm -hmm. what is actually going on. So trying to work through that mm -hmm. was really the, and if we didn't have our business coach, it probably wouldn't have been as successful as it was. Mm -hmm. um, and it's tough because you're dealing with, you know, um, as a winemaker, you have a lot of ego. You know, this is what you've created. This is what you've done. And what, someone new's coming in, you're gonna change everything? What? So if you're changing everything, that means you think what I did was crap. Right. What? So, you know, there's no, there's no getting around that. And part of me wanting to become winemaker was because I've seen winemaker transitions before where the new winemaker comes in and they feel they have to change everything mm -hmm. just because they have to make their mark. Right. I mean, doing to the extent of what Trump did to Obama, just, I don't care if it's a good idea or a bad idea, we're changing everything. Mm -hmm. Just because that's, has you know. Your name, it has your name on it. Gotta, I gotta make my mark, you know? I gotta pee on every bush. You know, I gotta, gotta mark, mark everything. Um, and I didn't want that to happen. Because I, I, I didn't want our style to change that much. Because when Russ came in, 180 changed from John Ha. When John Haw came in, there was a lot of changes from Bob McRitchie. So when I came in from Russ, I wanted to change some things, but I didn't want it to be like a flippin' wholesale change day one. Mm -hmm. It was like, I said, all right, there's some things I want to try that are different, but I'm not gonna change the main thing, which is really similar pick dates, similar you know, fermentation styles, and then I'll, might adjust, I'll cut some oak here, some, you know. Sure. So, and really it's been a five-year change. So really leading style on a five-year change. So I wasn't changing anything more than 10% a year. And that was important to me just because there's continuity in our brand. Mm. You know, I didn't want a new winemaker coming in and just purely based on ego changing everything. And changing things based on no better, not, not in my mind, not for a really good reason. Because mm -hmm. your ego is not, it's important, but it's not everything. So, yeah, that transition was tough. How did you get through it? Business coach. She'd call everyone on, on their shit, <laughs> and that was good. Um, just an independent outsider mm -hmm. who said, you know, who <laughs> said at times, you guys, you hired Alex to be a winemaker, just let him do his thing. Mm -hmm. You know, just let him do his thing. So, and that was, I needed that. So... At what point, if, if that point has happened, did you feel that you were the winemaker? Like, that, you, that your decisions were now unquestioned, <laughs> or not unquestioned, but you know what I mean, unchallenged? Yeah. I am a harshest critic. I still, I still, um, you know, I think winemaking is one of those things where you will not reach the top of your game until probably your last harvest. Because like, don't forget, we have, you only get one shot a year to make wine. That's it, one shot. Mm -hmm. 
And a good winemaker, he or she will have maybe 30 chances to make a great wine, mm -hmm. to make their mark. If they're lucky, 30 chances. So that's why if you really want to make something, distill, make beer. Wine, I mean, if you're lucky, you get 30, I mean, 30 years as a winemaker. A winemaker is a physical demanding job. So really at about 60, you're going to be like, oh man, this is, i going to walk up the stairs. I got, oh man, it's, this is, you know, my back is bad. So um, I, you know, am learning a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, the, the adage is true. You make wine in the vineyard. And the vineyards are changing a lot these days, just with global warming, mm -hmm. climate change. Mm -hmm. Seeing things I've never seen before in my life. And it's just, you know, keeping up with that. How do you make wine when you're seeing something that you've absolutely no, well, you, we do have control over it, but, you know, there's only, you know, there are things we can do, mm -hmm. um, and there are things that we need the collective as a society to do. Um, and that's, I think, the, the pinch point right now. Um, so, I, you know, I know I'm the winemaker, the buck stops with me, and in my own mind, I'm still like, whew, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm barely hanging on, because mm -hmm. things, the, the variables change so much all the time. Um, and just when you think that you've uh, you've honed one thing, a variable changes. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot like riding a surfboard. So, and one one day, I know. I mean, the, the you know, it's it's to me, winemaking is a lot like. You know, I love baseball, so um, I played baseball in high school and college. And a lot of you know, making being a good winemaker is like being, just being a good hitter. Mm -hmm. You know, and you get better the more pitchers you see. Mm -hmm. And you know, God is is you know, Mother Nature. You know, that is the pitcher. Mm -hmm. So you're you know, sometimes Mother Nature. My first harvest was 2012. Mother Nature threw a fastball right down the middle of the plate. And when you get that, you got to make her pay. So that was a great vintage, mm -hmm. over the fence hit. But most years are really pitches that you have got to figure, figure out a way to put the bat on the ball. Mm -hmm. And the more years you have on your plate, you know, the, more, the better chances you have of getting really the meat of the bat on the ball and getting more than just on base. Maybe you can get an RBI. Maybe if you're lucky, you can get a home run. But those will come very rarely. Very rarely. So the years to go by, you, you know, my hope is I was batting maybe 150 <laughs> in 2012. Now I feel I'm batting 250, you know. Sure. When I retire, I'm hopefully I'm batting 300, maybe 350. Five years Why later, not 400? Five years I'll later, you're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so it's just, it's, 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 you know, you learn more tricks, you learn more things, but at the same time, I mean, God, this weather is crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you mentioned um, kind of the, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but the, your, your winemaking philosophy, you, you mentioned starts in the vineyard. So, yeah. what is your, what is your winemaking philosophy? How would you define yeah. you as a winemaker? The, I, 
Um, I think winemaking philosophy, you know, you, you start with what you love. You know, I love any Chablis from Le Clos. You know, anything, because what I, what I get from that is just purity of fruit. Mm -hmm. You just get, and you get this, this, this aspect of, of the terroir from this area in Chablis mm -hmm. in France. And I love that. And so that's my favorite wine in the world. So what I try, what, what, what I love as a winemaker is I love purity of fruit. So I, well, I use oak. I've ratcheted back our new oak percentage from around 40 down to 20% new oak. Because I really want, I want that purity of fruit that we get from our vineyard. These beautiful red fruits, red cherry, red raspberry, red plum, Sometimes cranberry on, on uh, well, those flavors are, are seeding because those are, that's more of a, a red flavor you get from a cooler vintage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that fruit with some of the weight that the vintage can bring you, so the tannins. And I want those tannins to, I want you to feel the weight without it drying out your tongue or making you go, wow, that's really sharp. I want those tannins to be on the smoother side. Because mm -hmm. um, that's what I like. You know, I want, I want to drink a glass of wine um, with the food, whatever I'm eating, and I want to have another glass. Um, and so, and a lot of that is the balance. But the main thing is I want, I want this purity of fruit. I want you to know that this is not a um, completely um, cellar magic wine, mm -hmm. where there is a lot of things, a lot of tricks you can do in the cellar to, to, to do certain things. And, and so that, a lot of that comes from the vineyard. Also, you know, acid's important to me too. I love acid. Um, so, that really drives, at the end of the day, that drives my picking decision in terms of when I pick. Mm -hmm. So I like to pick on the earlier side. I want a lot, little bit more acidity. I don't want to get overripe flavors in the wine. Um, I want that brightness um, and the freshness. Mm -hmm. um, and then add, potentially add weight by how we ferment, maybe add a little bit of weight with some new oak in, in the oak aging 16 months. But I want to keep that purity of fruit. That's what's most important to me. Mm -hmm. So, and I want that also, um, I want that fruit to show decades down the road. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I do, one, one of the changes I do for my stepdad is I, I filter all the wine. All the wine's filtered now. Um, and I filter it, the reason I filter is to keep that purity of fruit there, now and into the future. If you don't filter, you got wine spoilage bacteria, or what I would call the nast wine, wine nasties, are in the wine. Just waiting to eat up the SO2 and then take over the wine and turn it into something that you had not intended it to be. Mm -hmm. So um, I filter for longevity and I filter for the style I want to showcase. You guys are seen as one of the kind of, you're on the forefront of sustainability live salmon steak. Why, why was that kind of stuff important to the family and, and why is it important to you as the, as the winemaker? Yeah. So, uh, um, 
What I always find interesting about my parents is that, you know, there's this image that they were hippies, you know. My parents were not hippies. <laughs> my parents were entrepreneurial. They were part of the Back to the Earth movement, but they weren't the pot-smoking, you know, Birkenstock-wearing, you know, um, wearing tie-dye stuff, you know, in the in the seventies. That was not them. Mm -hmm. um, they they were open to a lot of change, but they're also fairly entrepreneurial in terms of wanting to try something new and taking a lot of risk in this business. Mm -hmm. um, but they always felt that, however they were running their business, they wanted to be as good to the earth as possible. And that meant something different over the years. So back in the 70s and 80s, it meant um, working with the local conservation district to pioneer cover crops in the vineyard. Um, in, the, um, in the 90s, it meant helping start a, you know, my mom helped start the third party certification live. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the aughts, there, it became, you know, organic became something that wasn't just part of, you know, there used to be 50 different laws on organic farming in the United States. And then once the National Organic Program became a law in what, 2000, 2001, 2002, I forgot what it was, we decided to say, hey, now there's a, a national definition of what it is to be organic. Mm -hmm. It's not my state over your state. And there is more integrity to the program than ever before. So that's when we decided to become organic. And now, you know, it's B Corp, sort of being, being B Corp certified. Mm -hmm. So it's not just farming organically or trying to reduce waste. It's trying to say, hey, from a whole system standpoint, how can we be better, you know, more attuned to the decisions we make and the effect they have on people, planet, profit? Mm -hmm. So, because um, sometimes, you know, we make decisions purely based on um, what's in front of us. And sometimes we're not even taking in consideration profit, which, which you think would be normal in a business. Um, and then also consider what does this effect be on the people? Mm -hmm. What will this effect be on the planet? So, it, you know, sustainability is as much about making money as it is about saving the planet, as it is about being good partners with your team and the local community. Mm -hmm. So it's all three of those things. Um, it's that, um, it's, it's, it's hard to do. I don't even know um, how realistic it is to do all three really, really well. Um, because a lot of the things that are good for the planet cost us a lot more money. And so internally we've said, listen, if it's a 5% more, then we'll do it. If it's more than that, we gotta really think and say, wow, this is really gonna, you know, it's gonna be like a, yeah, this is better for the planet, but it's 20% more than the other product, mm -hmm. you know, other supply that we buy. You know, how, we, 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 we think about these things, we weigh these things, you know, and, you know, again, we don't, we're not always making the, the decision that's best for the, for the planet, but know that we're considering it, <laughs> and it's, it's, there's a discussion behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, at the end of the day, that's what sustainability is, is you're having a discussion. You're thinking. There's, you know, there's, there, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray out there. Mm -hmm. So 
um, and the decisions you make um, have effects in all three realms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so that that's you know sustainability is is something that is as important now as as ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, to try to you know hold on to what we have in Oregon and keep it you know like this for the next generation sure so so we talked earlier about your transition to winemaker let's talk a bit about your transition into being a co-president mm-hmm. and, and what that was like and, and working side by side with your sister and, and and how that transition and the balance there has has worked out yeah so that um you know that was you know looking back you know, my sister and I get along really well. And I think, but we're also very, very different. You know, she sees black, I see white. So, which was different than me and my mom. Because before my sister came on, is my mom and I were kind of, you know, running the show. So my mom and I, we probably didn't get along as well as my sister and I did, but we saw eye to eye and everything. So it's kind of like, from a business standpoint, yeah, mom and I were like, really aligned. So now, you know, Alice and I have a good relationship, but wow, we come at things very, very differently. So, um, which is, which is better? Which is easier? They're both. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, sometimes I wish we saw more eye to eye and sometimes, you know, um, sometimes not, but you know, so I think the, 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 you know, the idea to make us co-presidents was very, um, you know, very fraught with peril because most co-presidencies are crash and burn. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't work. Um, but. Um, and actually, I had, a, I had a good friend bet against us, um, and the the and the the whoever won had to p- buy the other one a box of Cuban cigars. So I smoked my last Cuban two years ago. <laughs> so unfortunately for him, so he actually had to get me a box of cigars back when this is before Obama, you know, mm-hmm. opened up Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, um, I think the the way so my my parents felt that and the family felt that being having co presidencies the dual accountability that you would have um, not only would I have my sister's back but I would hold her accountable to do what I know she needs to do mm-hmm. and vice versa mm-hmm. so. Um, there would be that person with, because on a day-to-day basis, Allison's the CEO, so Allison runs the show. So Allison, she has the final word on everything. But the co-presidency comes in because we both have the equal, you know, power when we report up to the board. So, or when we're at the board setting, setting strategy and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. So that's where we actually have, you know, that's where that, the co-presidency really comes into play. Mm-hmm. 
less so on a day-to-day -day basis because Allison, you know, she, um, again, when you run sales and marketing, you need to have control over what's going on because mm -hmm. that's the hardest thing to do. It's not the winemaker. I know winemakers will tell you, well, yeah, they're, <laughs> but having done sales and marketing, <laughs> making wine is fun. You gotta worry about everything that happens in the marketplace. It's insane. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, she is a CEO and I'm um, just a winemaker or winemaker. Um, so, but the co-presidency, I think, is, is, you know, the family set it up, and I, I still see the value in it um, today, is that you, we hold each other accountable, and we're, we're, we're both um, uh, supportive of each other when we have uh, the biggest discussions we have on the year, which is at the board level, uh, talking about the budget, talking about three- to five-year plans, and things that really dictate our future. Mm -hmm. So... Do you remember the first major decision you made as co-presidents? Or first major disagreement you had? My mom handed over the baton to Allison and I on January 2nd, 2008. That was an extremely tumultuous year for me. Mm -hmm. um, got divorced that year. I became co-president. The economy took a massive shit. And um, yeah, Allison was gone for half the year because she just gave birth to uh, her first kid. So I was um, I had a pretty full plate that year. And I think the first decision the, I think the major decision we made because of the economy is we said we're not going to fire anyone. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not laying anyone off. We're going to figure this out. So we took in everything. We brought payroll in-house. We did our own cleaning. <laughs> we brought, I mean, we just, everything we brought in-house. Everything. And we didn't lay anyone off. Um... So that was probably that first, you know, it was probably the first big, big thing we decided to do. Um, major disagreements? <laughs> um, I think, you know, it has been about, um, I think the last big disagreement was, you know, a lot of it has to do with sustainability. Um, because there are, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, I, the last big disagreement we had, I think, was about uh, to go for, when we were building this building, mm -hmm. to go for what's called uh, the living building challenge. The living building challenge, which was basically, because um, I was overseeing the project, and it was basically, it's a wonderful third-party certification that if you can get it, you're God. I mean, it's very difficult to get. Mm -hmm. It's like lead platinum times two. Wow, it's insane. So 
when we, my sister and I, I was like, this is stupid. We sh this, Allison, this is like, you were just taking $30,000 and we're just gonna set it on fire. For $30,000, let me expand the solar panels. Mm -hmm. She's like, no, we're gonna go for this. We're doing living building challenge. This is the next, this is the cutting edge. This is cutting edge of sustainability. I said, well, we're gonna get cut by it because this is, we, we can't do this. This is impossible. And I really felt that way. Mm -hmm. And then, but the rest of the family agreed with Allison, which was totally cool. And, but it, it, it really was impossible, you know? And I, um, we didn't hit it. And who's to say it wasn't worth going for? I mean, I shot the moon. I applied to a bunch of colleges I never got into. You know, what was I thinking? That wasn't pragmatic. Um, so, you know, my, my family still is entrepreneurial and we went for something that I don't think we, you know, I take that back that we just set fire to $30,000 because we did learn a lot by it. You know, we didn't achieve it. Um, but um, we learned a lot from that experience. But I think that was the last big thing mm -hmm. that, you know, we went to loggerheads about. So, yeah. You mentioned your first decision coming in as the economy is tanking and you, you just, your first decision is not to lay people off. So tell me why that, why that was your first reaction to the crisis was that we're not gonna lay people off. Just because, you know, everyone's hair was on fire. You know, and to just, to settle the ship and saying, hey, you know what? I know your hair's on fire. Yeah, no one's getting raises this year, but guess what? We're not firing anyone. Mm -hmm. We're not laying anyone off. Your job is safe. <sighs> okay, sure. thanks. Mm -hmm. Totally settled the ship. If our whole staff said, we can have layoffs, and if we said, we don't know, what? Yeah. The hair's on fire. Hair's on fire. And they're running around with hair on fire. No. So I think just settling everyone's nerves mm -hmm. and just making, letting everyone know that don't worry, we're gonna, we're gonna figure this out one way or another. But no, we're not laying anyone off. Mm -hmm. There'll be no job force reductions. You know, that's not gonna be us. Um, so, um, and I think that was really, you know, that's one thing that I learned a lot about during the Great Recession was sometimes you just, you know, you need to do some old-fashioned leadership. You need to put a flag in the ground, and whether it's wrong or right, just, you got to put a flag in the ground somewhere because mm -hmm. people need answers. Your team needs some answers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's what we felt strongly about, and then Allison went on leave. <laughs> She's like, good luck. Like, Don't worry. <laughs> got it. It's all right. The sky's falling, but I got this. That's right. So, you talked earlier about some of the some of the, growing up with some of the second generation kids, the Ponzi kids, Jason Lett, uh, Adam Campbell. I'm curious, uh, as you now have all grown into the family business and are in leadership roles, uh, if you if there's an added pressure that you feel being second generation, having your family name or your or your family still around part of the business, uh, that you you look at your binder business differently than other folks uh, who may be the same age in, in Oregon wine. Um, well, uh, 
Yes and no. Um, I think we have put an added pressure onto Allison and I because we've been very vocal in saying that, you know, Sokol Blosser is here to be a third, fourth, and fifth generation business. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so basically, we're telling all these mergers and acquisition artists that we're in it to win it, we're not in it to spin it. So everyone's for sale these days, and the M&A people are opening up offices all over the freaking place. Um, and But we tell them, you know what? For better, for worse, and it could be for worse, we're going to remain family-owned and operated. <laughs> that could be to our demise. But we're going to do our damnedest to figure that out. So it would be a little bit less pressure to say, you know what, we're open to spinning it. We're opening up, we're open to investors and we could probably get those tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and you could have, you know, a way out. Um, but at this point, we're, our way out is ensuring that we have a third generation who has passion and competence mm -hmm. to take a role in the business. And if they don't, to hire a really good caretaker who can run the show um, until the fourth generation mm -hmm. is ready. Mm -hmm. So. Do you feel like you're sort of like the guardians of like the Oregon ethos, like the, the what you talk about the back to the land and the 60s and 70s and kind of the the spirit that founded the, the local industry. Do you feel like that's mm -hmm. part of y your your responsibility now? Not really. I don't, I've never really thought about that. Um, I hope I didn't just add something to your point. I didn't mean to. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, the, the, the thing that I feel very confident about the future of the Oregon wine industry is that it's not going to change that much. It's going to change, but it's not going to change that much. I mean, we've, Oregon will change you. Mm -hmm. You know, you move here, you see how we roll, you'll fall in line. You know, and that's just, that's just, that's the, you know, that's the DNA of what it is to be an Oregonian. You know, you are here because you want to have a good lifestyle. You are not here to make a shitload of money. If you want to make a ton of money, you're not going to live here. You will move to Washington or you will move to California mm -hmm. or another state where people shoot the moon all the flipping time. There's only one Fortune 500 company in Oregon, that's Nike. That's it. We're an ag state. Mm -hmm. We're a lifestyle state. That's who we are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is... And that, that's the way Oregon's always been. And I don't see that changing. So when I see big conglomerates move here, you know, they're, they fall in line, mm -hmm. you know? And I think Oregon has a way of, of, you know, I wouldn't say humbling you, but I think it has a way of making you realize that there are, wonderful other places that you can go and shoot the moon. Um, but Oregon may not be that place. Oregon's that place to, you know, yeah, follow your passion, but it's also a place to, that it's just beautiful to be.
it's beautiful to be in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's reflective of everything we do, from the land use laws to, you know, making the beach public to bottle build. I mean, there's so many things that, that reflect that and how we roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with the Oregon wine industry. You know, I think it, it, it's very difficult to make a lot of really good Pinot Noir. So you can't make 10,000 cases of a super Zorch Pinot Noir. Maybe 500 cases, maybe 1,000 if you're lucky, but it's just small amounts of like super high-end Pinot Noir. So you're not gonna make a, you're not gonna make a lot of money on that. Unless you come into Oregon with a lot of money to start with. <laughs> so what do you see, you, see, you don't see it changing a whole lot. What do you see in the future for Oregon wine in the next 10, 15 years? Well, we gotta get rid of all the marijuana. That's having an effect. That's weird. <laughs> I didn't see how weird it was gonna be. Yeah. You got soccer moms on the sidelines eating edibles. You know, I mean, what is, what the hell? You know, it's not, you know, you, you see on the sidelines drinking a little bit of, you know, a wine spritzer. Mm-hmm. No. You got edibles pop left and right. I'm like, what? Seriously, this is what's happening? So, um, That's going to be interesting. I don't know where that's going to go. Um, like with anything, I think there's always going to be room in the marketplace for a great product. Mm-hmm. Could be a wine, could be a restaurant. You know, there's always room for a great for another great restaurant. There's not room for another wine that's just ho hum. So I think it's going to continue to get very competitive in the Oregon wine industry. And I think if you're going to get into it. You gotta know what you're getting into, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I think a lot of wineries in Oregon are for sale these days. Just because people realize, man, this is a tough business. Yeah, this is tough. This ain't easy. You got distributors consolidating, so my access to national distribution is tough. You know, direct to consumer, everyone, you know, only so many people can be in so many wine clubs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, but that being said, Oregon is one of the bright spots in the wine industry. I mean, the overall wine market's only up, what, 1% to 2% this last year? And in previous years, it was up, you know, 5 to 10%. So it's slowing down a little bit. That's why I think I, I gotta, I'll hang that on marijuana. I'll blame marijuana for that. That's right. Got to blame somebody. Can't be me. Um, but in terms of Oregon, I think Oregon is up like double digits still nationally. Yeah. Um, so, um, Oregon still has some growth, um, but I do think it's, it's, it is, the hurdle to make wine in Oregon is very low now, and mm-hmm. the hurdle to, for people to accept your wine is low. Mm-hmm. What's high is, um, making money in it mm-hmm. and doing it well year in, year out, because that's where I think it's going to be challenging. Because um, it's so competitive. What is it about Oregon wine that makes it so makes it so desirable nationally? Why is it still growing? Because I do think um, the people that we are attracting and the people who set up shop here are mostly real. Mm-hmm. They're real people with real passion um, and real stories. This is not a giant brand just flipping let's try this brand let's try you know um 
Naughty Light Bulb. Naughty Light Bulb Chardonnay. Naughty Light Bulb Merlot. Let's see if that works. It might work. Someone likes light bulbs. People like being naughty. Boom. You know, there it's it's uh, there, there's a little bit more realness, mm -hmm. um, and I think um, I think that'll always resonate. I mean, people say they you know authenticity is big these days. You know, I don't think it's more or less than it's ever been. Coke is still popular. Everyone drinks Coke. Mm -hmm. How authentic is that? But millennials still, you know, they love Coke. Okay, that's fine. But I still think, you know, I don't, it, there's always going to be room for that authentic story and people who say, hey, yeah, I made this. This is, this is me. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, here's my story. Mm -hmm. And I think Oregon's full of people like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think as long as we can keep getting those messages out, I think the, there will continue to be good growth. Um, and that's why I think, you know, there's some still, there's some big brands that are wondering how they fit into that. Mm -hmm. You know, how would a Constellation fit into Oregon? Mm -hmm. You know, how would Gallo fit into Oregon? You know, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. How can we still be Oregon and have Naughty Light Bulb Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley? What is that? You know, can we do that? Mm -hmm. So. Does it feel like that's going to change? It seems like a lot of people who are, who are keeping Oregon the that authentic, real are sort of the first generation of the the pioneers of the wine, of the industry. Uh, will that change as they are out of the picture? I don't think so. I mean, I, I you know, I think there's a a number of uh, um, new wineries that. I feel there's a lot of passion and um, authenticity to, I and mean, like right down the street, you know, a Day Wine Company, mm -hmm. you know, Brian Day's got a lot of, you know, incubator through a lot of brands there where, you know, there's a lot of passion, not a lot of money, but a lot of passion to make great wine. Um, I think of Walter Scott, mm -hmm. you know, they're, um, you know, there's, to me, there's the engine that drives Oregon is still the small upstart. And um, yes, I know that you know KJ gets a lot of play by the investments they've made mm -hmm. and the brands that they've acquired. Um, but still, you know, it's the, we're still very, very far away from um, becoming like Washington, where one winery is sixty percent of the wine industry, mm -hmm. like Saint Michelle. Mm -hmm. But look at Saint Michelle in Oregon. They're not 60% here, and they, they own Erath. Mm -hmm. So. Interesting. What about the future for you and for Sokol Blosser? What do you see happening here in the next 5, 10, 15 years, and for you personally and, and for, the, for the business? Um, uh, you know, my passion, my focus is making compelling wines coming out of our vineyard site. I mean, our estate here in the Dundee Hills. Um, my best vintages are still in front of me, you know, in terms of coming up with something that it's not just good, it's not just great, it's gotta be compelling. It's gotta be something that is just, just, you know, 
like in the movie this is spinal tap it's got to go to 11 you know what does that look like mm-hmm. um uh it's hard to put a descriptor to it um so to try to and make make that mm-hmm. um uh well at the same time you know the the biggest concern i have right now is just trying to figure out you know what climate change how it's going to affect us you know and every day that goes by i'm like i you know saw a, saw a lizard in the vineyard the other day and i'm like i've never seen a lizard in the vineyard i see these in southern california right what the hell you know um so you know just things like that just really make my hair on my back go up it's like oh my god what am I dealing with now? Are the locusts going to start descending? <laughs> um, so, uh, but the future for for Sokol Blosser is is going to be you know based on based on quality and based on you know you know becoming staying and becoming even more relevant in the marketplace mm-hmm. and that is always going to be our challenge is you're only as good as your last vintage and you're only as good as how relevant you are in the marketplace so circle Blosser folds tomorrow all that market space will get taken in a second mm-hmm. in a second mm-hmm. so it is convincing everyone that they need circle Blosser wines and I'm more than happy to make those wines, and I know my sister is more than happy to make that pitch. Um, and that's how we're gonna get to the third generation. Sure. And be, be the stewards that we know we need to be to the business, so. Now that you've, you have gone through these transitions in the second generation, and you're looking ahead to the third generation, what are the, what are the kind of pitfalls you're looking to avoid? What are the mistakes you made, or or uh, the obstacles that came up with that transition that you're hoping will go more smoothly when it's time to hand it on to the next generation? I think the, the, to be, um, to be intentional about everything, mm-hmm. about the transition. And that starts, we've already started being, doing that with all the third generation by telling them that we want this to be a third generation business. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that being said, um, there's no expectation that you need to be in the business. Um, and to be intentional about exposing the third generation to all aspects of the business. Mm-hmm. So they see that, you know, we do everything in the business. We're farmers, we grow it, we're manufacturers, we make it into wine, and then there's sales and marketing. But there are other roles there's we've got a warehouse we hire we have lawyers we have bookkeepers accountants we have lab technicians we've got landscapers we mean we, there are it is there are so many things the only thing we don't have on we don't have a philosopher on staff <laughs> so if you become a philosopher probably won't be able to hire you um so there are you know the, there are many aspects many roles that need to be played here mm-hmm. to make this business um uh you know to make great wine um and sell it so um 
So the hope, you know, so there there is a lot of in, in, intentionality to it, mm -hmm. um, but there also is a lot of just take, you know, sometimes you gotta back off and let things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you can can have the best intentions, and then you know, you it doesn't resonate with with the third generation, and then we just have to go to the next step. Sure. So. You talked about climate change um, and seeing a lizard in your vineyard, which is that's very strange. Um, what do you? What are your? What are your concerns for the environment as you're going to be the winemaker for the foreseeable future here? Yeah. What is it you're worried about? Do you do you foresee being unable to grow Pinot Noir here in, in the future? Do you are something that drastic? You know, I used to think that that was probably pretty drastic and that probably, you know, that's horseshit, but. You know, now I'm starting to think that, um, you know, I was just in California last week and they're, I mean, they are dealing with massive, a massive catastrophe, basically because based on two years ago, they had that drought. Mm -hmm. So I visited a vineyard that we, we, we work with down there to make a negotiant wine called Evolution Red and all around this vineyard in the hills like 30% of the trees were dead, mm. dead. And the growers like, yeah, it's because of the drought two years ago. So there's, there's so much fuel around this vineyard that can just catch on fire. You know, we don't have that in Oregon yet. We haven't had a drought like that. Mm -hmm. um, but hell, if we do, I mean, I, the, 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 so the concern is not just in growing Pinot Noir, it's just that, you know, what does it look like if, you know, we already do have very dry summers, what does it look like if we do have more serious droughts and we don't get the water we mm -hmm. usually take for granted in the wintertime? Mm -hmm. um, how different, you know, this is, it's probably, you know, climate change is the big thing. You know, how much is it going to change? My favorite restaurant on the coast, they had to raise it nine inches because now when they have storms, you know, the storms come in that much more. Mm -hmm. Um, because of sea level rise and because of the past crazy storms have, you know, eaten away a lot of the, the beach, mm -hmm. a lot of the dunes. So it's like, wow, that's scary. Um, you know, and the, the glaciers are, I mean, I backpacked around Mount Hood two weeks ago and it's like, wow, there's, you know, the glaciers are receding quite a bit. Um, so, I mean, I'm, it's just, it's, it's all happening. And I don't, you know, I used to think that, yeah, we'll still be able to grow Pinot Noir, but you know, 20, 30 years from now, I don't, you know, it may be that much warmer here that we won't be able to grow Pinot Noir like we used to. We can still grow it. It'll just be more California style. Um, you won't have that acidity. You won't have that brightness. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, the current president can say whatever they want, but the, the, it, it, it's looking at things that he's trying to change. And, you know, we just need to raise complete holy hell about moving back the fuel standards for cars. I mean that you know he can say he can pull out of the Paris Agreement that whatever, but if you pull back that the auto industry instead of going for an average of 55 miles a gallon down to 30, yeah. 
that's real. That that's a real thing, and that is going to hit the, the the climate hard. And that's something that you know. I know that the the activist in me is like, okay, that's now he's trying. That's where the rubber's going to hit the road if that thing actually goes through. Mm -hmm. Pulling out of Paris, fine, whatever. We knew you're going to do it, but it's the policies that are going to really hurt. That policy hurt. Sure. That's a setback for all of us. Yeah. But, you know, we marched to a different drummer in Oregon. So hopefully, you know, but part of that bill is that they're going to say states can't, states can't set their own standard. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know. So what power does the Oregon wine industry have? Does it have any power to? to so the, the, the power that we have is, you know, we are farmers, and climate change hits us incredibly hard. And it's about just telling our story and ensuring that um, that message doesn't get lost. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately, there's not many people in Oregon that aren't aligned with that story politically. Um, you know, even my Republican friends, you know, they're, they're in, you know, they know it's cool. Um, that, you know, climate change is real and we, we need to, we need to, you know, make some hard choices. Like we need to make those like 20 years ago, Yeah. but now let's make them. We can make them now. We'll, we'll make them. So, um, so it's it's not talking to ourselves in an echo chamber. I don't know. There's there's, there's uh, um, I'm not quite sure what we can do from a national standpoint, mm -hmm. and that's kind of where the battle needs to play out. Mm -hmm. um, but in or but on the you know Oregon, Washington, California. I mean, there's a lot of alignment mm -hmm. on this. So. So last question for you. Yeah. Uh, you obviously took a very interesting route to get into the industry. What advice would you give to someone who was looking to join the Oregon wine industry today? Yeah. Um, it's a great industry. I mean, there, there's, there's so many facets to it. Um, the, there are so many facets to it. Um, and I think the 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 best thing to do is keep drinking wine <laughs> because through the wine you're going to find out where your passion actually lies. Mm -hmm. Is it on the wine side? Is it on the sales and marketing side? Is it on a potential supplier side? Is it on doing something that is abreast to the industry but not in the industry like being a lawyer mm -hmm. or being a you know lawyer that focuses on wine or mm -hmm. you know there it's it, but it all comes through drinking the wine because it all that's where it all starts you got to have that passion you got to have that interest because wine is a beautiful thing i mean it really is you know something that is you know it is 
a snapshot on the year and everything you need to make wine is right there. The cluster of grapes, you got the yeast, you got the water, you got the flavors, you're not adding anything. You know, it's just, it's, it's, that is a, that, that's a beautiful thing right there. So, um, um, but just keep drinking, keep tasting, keep, keep, um, you know, because if you're not interested in wine, then I, you know, it's not your industry. So. That's all the questions that I have. Uh, anything else I should have asked you? Anything else you'd like to mention here at the end? No, I think it's all good. I mean, <laughs> those, are all, those are all good questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for your yeah. answers. You're welcome. Go ahead Thank and you. Stay there. So. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.